Thank you, Ms. Chris. Powerful song, powerful truth, and its truth is powerful. Acts chapter 9 this morning, Acts chapter number 9, and Neighborhood Bible Time, we saw just a snippet of that, and that'll be starting tomorrow morning with the elementary children, preschool through sixth grade, and then the high school, seventh grade and up, will be uh, meeting each night, and they start tonight at 6.30. And also tonight in our service, we'll be having a men's singing group called Glory Bound coming from Heartland Baptist Bible College. They'll be with us in the evening service and I believe they'll be a real blessing to you. And, um, and then choir, if you'll just plan to get here at 440 and so you can run through the, um, the song uh, for this evening, that'll be a help. And so we're thankful for uh, Brother Don stepping in. The, the Autrys are out of town on vacation. Brother Don does an excellent job. Thankful for that. Acts chapter number 9. We have it. Let's stand together, please. Look at this all-familiar passage of Scripture. Begin our reading in verse number 1. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter, went against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. And desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. We see this, again, familiar passage. It was in A.D. 33 that this young Pharisee, highly educated, filled with zeal, was on that road to Damascus. He had just one intention, and that was to eliminate this new sect called Christianity. While on his way, however, we just read that he was blinded by a bright light from heaven. Then Saul of Tarsus fell to the ground. And with the cry of salvation, he said, Who art thou, Lord? Verse number five. And then the words and explanation came to him, saying, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Saul of Tarsus was then saved. Now, according to verse six, after having put his faith in Jesus, he trembling and astonished, he cries a second cry, and this one is of surrender. And he says, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Paul, now 
converted, now consecrated. He turns his energy to the cause of Christ for the next 20 years. And for the next 20 years, he travels the Roman Empire. He preaches and he teaches Christ. He evangelizes the lost and he disciples men. Now, Paul's experience with his surrender and salvation coincided from verse 5 to verse 6. In other words, Paul got saved and in the same dealing, in the same counseling room with Jesus, from verse 5 to verse 6, he gets saved and he surrenders at the same time. However, and tragically, that's not true with most people. For many people, Christ is accepted as their Savior only to later recognize Christ to be their sovereign. Yet to recognize Christ as Lord is as important to the saint as it is to the sinner in accepting Christ as Savior. See, recognizing Christ as Lord is as important to the Christian who wishes to experience the abundant Christian life as it is for the sinner to accept Christ as Savior to experience eternal life. This morning I want to preach the secret to experiencing the Christian life. It's still surrender. The secret to experiencing the Christian life is surrender to the Savior. Thank you. Please be seated. Years ago, two men were walking on the shores of Dublin, Dublin, Ireland, when one of the men said to the other, quoting the words of a famous Christian, he said, the world is yet to see what God can do with and through and for and in a man who's wholly yielded and consecrated to him. His companion said, could you say that again? He said, the world is yet to see what God can do with and through and for and in a man who's wholly yielded and consecrated to him. The young man hearing those words was D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. Moody, like the Apostle Paul, went on to do great things for God. It is said that before radio, television, cars, airplanes, public address systems, that D.L. Moody traveled over one million miles, preached to over 100 million people, and he personally dealt with 750,000 souls. He often addressed crowds of 40 to 60,000 each and every week, speaking to as much as 10 to 20,000 people in a single service. One writer said, D.L. Moody, he reduced the population of hell by over one million souls. D.L. Moody started Moody Bible Institute at that time. One out of 18 missionaries, one out of every 18 missionaries who went to the foreign field was trained under D.L. Moody. He started Moody Press. And one of the reasons God used this very simple man that never got past an eighth grade education, overweight, high nasally pitched sound was because D.O. Moody came to a point in his life where he surrendered completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps it's time that you and I say, I surrender all to the Lord and to his perfect will and plan for our life. You know, you take this matter of God and the devil's not too bothered with us talking about God. I'm convinced of that. Would you hold your place here and let's go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter number three. And I want you to see that what we're dealing with this morning is not new, but it's just as vital as it was when Satan began to tamper with God's design. In Genesis chapter number three, we find that the first conversation between the devil and humans was about God. Not only that, but it was also about God's word. See, Satan initiated talking about God. Satan initiated talking about the word of God. Satan asked Eve in verse 1 of chapter 3, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say this? Let's talk about what God said. And Satan did this because he knew that in order to get rid of God's rulership, he had to get rid of God's authority, meaning the word of God. And a very important part of Satan's strategy is that he did not seek to get rid of religion. He just sought to undermine your relationship with God. The whole conversation that was started by Satan was about God. In fact, he even went so far as to tell Eve in Genesis 3 and verse 5 that she could be like God. So when you talk about, well, I desire to be like God, I want to experience God, he doesn't really mind that. Satan doesn't mind that you go to church and be here at church all day long. What he does mind, though, is when you acknowledge God as ruler over your life. This is evidenced by a clever maneuver Satan pulled on Eve. Look over in chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, well, let's go back to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And we can go on and on and on. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Now look at chapter 3 when Satan gets involved. He wants to keep the emphasis upon religion. He wants to keep your mind involved with God and thinking about his word. But here's what the way Satan approached it. Verse 1, yea, hath God said? What did Satan leave out? The Lord. All throughout these first two chapters, you find Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. What Satan left out was Lord. What does Lord God mean? It means ruler. Absolute authority. Yet when Satan talked with Eve, he removed the name Lord. 
he purposefully left out the fundamental principle that God is the rightful king over his kingdom. See, the issue in the garden was really about whose word would be final. Is it going to be Satan's? Is it going to be Adam's? Is it going to be Eve's? Or is it going to be God's? Or will you just say that he's God? Will you just say that he's God and you make your own decision? And that's what Satan was trying to accomplish. And whenever you allow the evil one to cause you to question the ultimate authority of God in your life, you jeopardize your influence in God's kingdom. That is why the the great tragedy to think is that, oh, we need more preachers. We need more missionaries. No, we don't. Then you just hear there's power in the cross. There's power in the gospel. What we need would be the preachers that are already claiming to be called by God to recognize they're not the Lord God, but there is one who is the Lord God. That's why so many Christians never fully live out the potential that God has for them. See, God created you for his glory. And whenever you live independent of him, you can try to be like him. You can even preach and teach him. You can lead a Bible study about him. But you're not experiencing the lordship of the Lord God until you take your hands off of your life and stop trying to live for your glory and live for your purpose and recognize you really have no right to existence outside of the kingdom of God. So to take the next steps into spiritual maturity, it demands that you take the definite basic step of surrender. You must make the simple choice, who will run your life? Who is going to rule you? If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, will you now take Him to be your sovereign? Will you allow Christ, the indwelling resident, to become the reigning president of your life? It's only when the saint of God, the child of God, surrenders to the Savior that spiritual progress can really take place. The question is, when this service ends and when you leave this building, which one of you will be Lord? Will you be the Lord? Or will Jesus Christ, who is Lord, be your Lord? See, the secret to Christian living is surrender to the Savior. I want you to see three things this morning. We're going to look at the basis of Christ's Lordship within our life. The battle for his lordship in our life and the benefits of his lordship. Number one, the basis. Do you know that the central message of the Bible is Jesus Christ is Lord? We see Satan attacking it at the very beginning. This was the theme that was preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verse 36. God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The first sermon preached to the Gentiles carried the same message. And Acts 10 and verse 36 says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Again, Paul tells the Philippian believers in Philippians 2 and verse 11 that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
See, because Jesus Christ is Lord, He has the right to be Lord of our lives. Do you know that God desires to be the Lord of your life? Christ desires to be your Lord. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, Paul says, Yield yourselves unto God. Yield. It means present. That means surrender. And what are you to surrender to God? Not your Sunday morning. Not even your plans. But yourself. This simply means the totality of your being, all that you are, all that you have is to be surrendered to him. Not letting him take a look at it, not letting him have a peek at it, not letting him have an opinion about it, but letting him have it locked, stock, and barrel. See, lordship is making your whole being available for him and his use. It is making your heart Christ's home. It then involves yielding your plans, your hopes, your dreams to God. Let me say it again, your plans, your hopes, your dreams to God. It's making your time, your treasure, your talents available for his use. It is you taking your hands off of your life and it's placing your life into the hands of the Lord for the Lord to use. Romans 12, 1, we know this. This is the danger. This is why people become so easily deceived, self-deception. I find in counseling it's easier to deal with somebody when there is satanic deception than it is when they are self-delusional, self-deceived. They become self-deceived, according to James chapter 2, by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing, but keeping their hands on their life and doing the parts that they want to do and as much as they want to do and trying to gain God's blessing at the same time. Self-deception. And Brother Josh Hainline <clears throat> challenged our men at eight this morning about the danger of Jeremiah 17 telling us our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So much so that we can look at Bible, we can talk about God and desire to be like him according to Genesis 3, and we forfeit the key to the Christian life, the basis of the Christian life. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present. What is that? That means surrender. That means take your hands off of it. You don't surrender something. You don't present a gift to somebody and you give it but keep your hands on it. And then it turns into a tug of war. I want you to have this gift. Kind of. No, you have it. And they go to take it, and you don't take your hands off of it. Well, do you want them to have it or not? Do you want God to have it or not? And the imagery that Paul uses in Romans 12 is as though Jesus is down on his knees. He's begging. He's pleading that you take your hands off of your life. You take your hands off of your livelihood. You take your hands off of that which is precious 
to you and you trust the one who is far more capable of guiding and directing. Simply put, God wants you and he wants all of you. God dealt with me some time back just about the significance of it because as I thought, you know, being a pastor and under shepherd, I see how people will sometimes come and say, I need to, need to talk to you. I need some counsel. And I come to find out a lot of times they don't need counsel. They just want to make a confession. The confession is, here's what I've done. I want you to see it and I want you to prove it. I want you to put God's blessing on it. Amen. And I say, what am I supposed to do with it? But that's how they do God. Uh, we, we've, already, we've, already, uh, uh, we've already made up our mind, God. We've got in on this and we figured it out. I want your blessing to it. And yet, God said, isn't that kind of what you do with me? God, I need your counsel. Here's what I'm going to do. God just sits there. And we'll begin to do it. We'll go down our merry way and we find, oh, the Bible's true. We do reap what we sow. And God says, I could have helped you a long time ago. But you didn't come to me for counsel. You came to me just to make a confession of, oh, you've heard it said. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Well, all things work together for good. It'll work together for good anyway. Sure it will. But you also get leanness into your soul. And in the meantime, divine appointments are missed. Souls are lost. Time is wasted. God wants you. All of you. All of you. God's not a game show host. He's not looking to make a deal with you or anybody else. He's God. He's the Lord God. Two little girls ran to their daddy's room to awaken him. The older girl got there first, jumped into her daddy's arms, teasingly looked at her sister and says, I've got all of daddy. Her father reached down and took the little girl into her arms, his arms, and the little girl looked at the older sister and said, you've got all of daddy, but he's got all of me. That's what the Lord desires of each of you. He wants to have all of you. Not only does God desire, Christ desire to be your Lord. I want to say this. He deserves to be your Lord. He deserves to be your Lord because you are His purchased possession. Romans 5, 8. He demonstrated that by the giving of Jesus on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15 tells us why Christ died for us. He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The truth is that Jesus died for you so that you would live for him. We're reminded of this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know your body, your soul, your inside, outside, he goes on to tell us, it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. As Christ purchased possession, we're to glorify God with our body by placing our bodies into the hands of the Lord for His control in our life. Because we're made by God, because we're purchased by Him with the precious blood of Jesus, He's ha He has the right to be Lord of our life. 
So often people have said, what right does God have to tell me what to do? Well, he made you. He died for you. He has a right. And when you stand before him one day, you can claim all you want to that he doesn't exist, but you have an account with him. You have an appointment with him. And it will be Jesus Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, you will stand before, before you're cast into the lake of fire. Why? Because he has the right to be your Lord. I want you to see the second thing this morning. Not only the basis for his lordship in our life, but the battle. There is a battle for Christ to be your Lord. You know, Christ has legitimate claim to be the Lord of your life. He doesn't, however, coerce you. He doesn't make you become his surrendered servants. Someone said one time, well, if you go back to Acts chapter 9, Saul didn't have much of a choice. Oh, yes, he did. In fact, Jesus said to Saul, it's hard to kick against the pricks. In other words, it's hard to go against the loving, powerful conviction of the Holy Spirit. But he, he didn't say it's impossible. He just said it can be hard. It's hard for some of you to sit and hear truth and resist it and go out and saying, have my own way, Lord. I'll have my own way. You can do it. But it's hard. Why? Because the way of the transgressor is hard. The fool, his way is always hard. See, in order for you to experience Christ as Lord, there's a battle. And the battle you must recognize is that he's looking, he's calling you. He's looking for recruits who will respond to his claim. He's not set up a draft system. He's calling. He's looking for those who will surrender and sign the dotted line willingly. So it requires an individual decision. See, surrender is not a very popular word. We associate it with humiliation, it accompanies defeat. When a country loses a war, forced to surrender unconditionally, yet there's a type of surrender that is dignified. There is a type of surrender that is appropriate, and Paul understood that. When a person puts their faith in Jesus to save them, he literally moves inside. Romans, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you. What is lordship? What are we talking about? Lordship is this. It's you inviting Christ, the resident, to be Christ, the president. It is you making Christ the guest to being Christ the host. It's you crowning Christ your Savior to being Christ your sovereign Lord. It's you giving permission to the one who has all authority and reason because he is Lord. It's you recognizing Jesus who is Lord to be your Lord. And this begins with the decision. It's an act of the will, just as on purpose as when a person gets saved. No one gets saved by accident. No one will ever get to heaven and say, how did I get here? And this matter of Christ being in charge and being the Lord of your life, it is no accident. It requires a definite decision. 
Paul said in Ephesians 3 and verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. It's a faith decision. The word dwell, it refers to a settled residence. It means to be at home. It, it refers to a decision we make. It refers to an act of the will. You've heard it said, maybe you've said it. You, you stay in somebody's home or they stay in your home and you've used the phrase, make yourself at home. Well, somebody stays in your home and you say, make yourself at home. You don't mean that. Especially if you're staying there. I certainly don't mean that when somebody's staying in my home. Don't, I, I don't know what they do in their home. You stay in a VRBO and you're not quite feeling like you can do everything that you would do in your home. It's, it's the nature of staying. It's the nature of, of, of existing without dwelling. And Paul says we need to allow Christ to dwell, to be grounded, to become a part. It's the nature of lordship. Many have rooms in your own house that if guest comes over, this is off limits. You tell the kids, don't open up that door. But we sometimes live the same way. There's rooms in our life. It's off limits to God. Behind those closed doors may be your plans, your goals, your dreams. Or you can dress it up like Saul did in 1 Samuel 15 and say, the reason why I've not done everything that God the Lord told me to do is because I'm going to sacrifice to God. And the preacher says, God's not as delighted in your sacrifice as in your obedience. But Lordship demands you hand over the keys to your room. F.B. Meyer, 37 years of age, he said to a younger preacher, you have something that I'm lacking. Can you maybe help me with what it might be? The younger preacher said, are you surrendered to the Lordship of God? Meyer said, I think I am. He left that conversation. His heart was heavy. He knew deep down inside, though he longed to see the blessings of God, he was missing it because he had his hands on his life and his ministry. F.B. Meyer went to his room and he got down upon his knees and he cried out to God in prayer. It was just a time of prayer. But as he was praying, he was weeping profusely because he was having a battle with God over who's going to be the Lord of his life. Will the Lord God be Lord or will Meyer be the Lord of his life? And his eyes grew heavy and he drifted off to sleep. And as he began to sleep while kneeling upon his knees, he began to dream about the very matter that he's battling through. And in his dream, he dreamt he's upon his knees. And there he dreams that he's crying out to God about surrender. Here a preacher is battling with God about the very thing that is the basic of Christianity. In his dream, the Lord Jesus walked into the room. It's just a dream. In the dream, the Lord Jesus walked up to Meyer as he was down upon his knees praying. In the dream, the Lord Jesus said to Meyer, I want all the keys to your life, all of them. Meyer said, in my dream, I reached in my pocket and pulled out a ring of keys and I handed them to the Lord. And in the dream, F.B. Meyer said, the Lord Jesus took those keys and he counted them one by one. And when he had finished, he turned and commenced to walk out the same door that he had entered. 
To which F.B. Meyer cried out, Lord, wait, where are you going? I don't want you to leave me. To which in that dream, the Lord Jesus turned to Meyer and said, I told you, I wanted all the keys to your life. There's one missing. And if I'm not Lord of all in your life, I'm not your Lord at all. F.B. Meyer put his hand back in his pocket. One solitary key was there and he gripped it and he pulled it out with a little bit of reluctance. And in the dream, he handed the key over to the Lord And he said, there's where I found blessing. Blessing. I was in a meeting one time. A lady came up to me and she said, I handed all the keys to the Lord. I said, that's wonderful. She said, literally. I said, what do you mean? She said, I bought a vehicle. It was outside the will of God. God wasn't for it. I knew it. My husband wasn't for it, but he let me do it. And she says, I've never had peace since I purchased it. I handed the key to my husband. And she said, and when I did so, I found the peace of God. It might be a literal key. It might be a spiritual key. But whatever key it might be. I've had some grandparents come and say, I've had to give the key of being out of the will of God just so I can be near my family. I've had to give that to God. There are many people who hold on to keys because they feel like if they give it to God, He's going to send them overseas as a missionary. Someone said, I'm afraid He'll send me to Africa. I don't know why Africa gets such a bum rap about this matter of surrender. I think they've got some McDonald's in Africa. You don't have to shoot your Big Mac. I think you can order them over there. The truth is, God can make you miserable anywhere. If that was his goal, his goal is not to make you miserable. His goal is to help you experience why you were placed here in the first place and to experience life worth living. It requires an individual decision on your part, but it also requires constant dependence. Meaning when you put this key into God's hand, all the keys and you say, I surrender all. It's more than just a decision. It's going to have to be an ongoing dependence upon the one you surrender to. Let's go back to the illustration we use so often because it fits. God's the one who came up with the institution of marriage, but he also is the one who's used the illustration of marriage to illustrate the simplicity of the Christian life. How easy is it to say, I do, I do, for the preacher to say, it's done. You can, in one moment, under God and before man, two become one. But if you're going to live happily ever after, it's going to take some dependence upon the one who created the institution of marriage. It's easy. It's easy to surrender to each other your life till death do us part. It's easy to surrender it. It's quite another thing to live it. It's easy to say, let me say this, it's easier to sing I surrender all. It's not impossible to live it. It just requires 
total dependence upon the one that you surrender to. What happens at camp? What happens in a revival meeting? People make decisions of surrender only to doubt it later because there's a battle. The battle is not whether or not God is Lord. The battle is not whether or not you should have surrendered to him. The battle is who are you now depending upon? Fight the good fight of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so this matter of surrender is ultimately a matter of can you trust him? Can you trust him? James McConkie was a Bible teacher of another era, wrote a a helpful book that wrote several, but one of which was a threefold secret of the Holy Spirit, and it was a great help to me. But he heard a message one time on the Lordship of Christ, but he felt that the message had no impact upon him. When the preacher prayed at the conclusion of the message, he made a statement, O Lord, you know we can trust the man who died for us. And as McConkie rose and walked away, he pondered deeply the lordship and what that might mean to his life. And he was actually afraid. Here again is a preacher struggling with whether or not he would fully surrender. But above the noise of the city and the noise of his own thoughts came those preacher's words, you can trust the man who died for you. As he rode the train home, he thought of the changes, the sacrifices, the possible consequences that the lordship of of God might bring. And again, he was afraid. Then above the noise of the train came the voice of that preacher. You can trust the man who died for you. When he arrived home, he went straight to his room. And there upon his knees, he saw his past life. He was a church officer and a Sunday school leader, but he had never definitely surrendered and lived in surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Oh, he went through decisions and he made prayers of surrender, but he then thought about his plans, how they might change. His profession, his dreams might have to be abandoned. And once again, he was afraid. Then came the words, you can trust the man who died for you. Then to those words were added, if you cannot trust him, then who can you trust? And that settled it for James McConkie. There upon his knees at the side of his bed, in a decisive act, he surrendered and allowed the Lord Jesus the rule and the reign of his life by faith. Not only do we see the basis of surrender to the Lordship, the battle of surrender to the Lordship. But I want you to see last, the benefits of Christ's Lordship. When this act of enthronement of Christ is followed by dependence upon the Holy Spirit, then Christ will make known in and through the believer himself. In other words, this is when you really truly experience God. He will manifest himself into our very lives, living his life out through our life. We then can say as the apostle Paul, Philippians 1 verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Christ is crowned Lord of our lives, then we will experience the one life that is living within to begin living himself through us, bringing several wonderful benefits and rewards. Let me just mention three. Number one, it's a life of power, 
a life of power. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. Through Christ means in union with Christ. We had an RV when we traveled in evangelism. And when we would hook that RV up to our truck, that union coming from the truck to the RV, it provided a supply of power and ability that the RV would not have known otherwise. We too can do nothing apart from Christ, but we can do anything and everything that God would have us to do when we are surrendered to Him and experiencing the life of God through us. It's a life of power. But not only a life of power, but it's a life of victory. The victorious Christian life is the victorious Lord living in you as absolute master. See, it's only when Christ is the master of your life that you will know his mastery in your life. A lot of people are trying to get victory in a certain area without letting Christ be the master of your life. He has no problem mastering anything in us. The battle, the key is us recognizing his mastery in and over all of our life. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Francis Havergal wrote the song we sing, take my love, my God I pour, at thy feet its treasure store, take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. See, surrender is victory when we yield to God. But what is it victory over? John 16, 33, the world. Romans 8, verse 3, the flesh. 1 John 3 and verse 8, the devil. If Jesus has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, then he can overcome these for you, in you, and through you. All you need to do is ask. A father was looking out the window watching his son play. He's playing in the sandbox using his toy truck and crane. But there's a big rock and he couldn't get it out of the way. And he watched his son begin to maneuver and, and manipulate that rock, try to adjust the sand and different things. But he gave up all in frustration because he couldn't move it. He came in and the father said, son, can't you lift the rock? Can't you get it out of the box? No, sir, the boy said, I can't do it. The father said, have you used all the strength that is available to you? The boy replied, yes, sir, I have. And the father said, no, you have not. The son said, what do you mean? The father said, you haven't asked me. And the father is waiting for you to ask him. Christ if he's the Lord of your life, when the world, the flesh, and the devil come knocking at your door, just ask your master for help. If you have a hard time forgiving someone, then come to Christ if he's your master and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I cannot forgive this person. I can't accept them, but I know you can. Would you enable me to forgive? And then would you love them through me? And here's what you'll find. You can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth you, but only when he's your master. 
Maybe you struggle with a particular sin and like a magnet, it pulls you in its direction. Maybe you cannot control the tongue flowing from the four-inch monster, all sorts of, sorts of vulgarities and exaggerations and gossip. Maybe you cannot control the mind. Every idle moment, it drifts into dangerous territory. Then ask the Lord's help. Tell him, Lord, I cannot beat this sin. I cannot control this tongue. I cannot stop my wandering mind, but I know you can. Would you unleash your holiness in me and let it flow through me? 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Always. Well, how come that's not true for me? Only because he's not your master. But not only is it a life of power and victory, but one last blessing is it's a life of obedience. Luke 6, 46, Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things which I've told you? That's a good question. I don't know a sufficient answer. Not one that would make us look good. Disobedience is inconsistent with the lordship of Christ in the believer. Therefore, the believer who recognizes the lordship of Christ will yield to him with unquestioned obedience. Let me close with this. Dr. Graham Scroggie was preaching at a conference in England. And he was approached by a woman after he had preached on this matter of surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. She walked up to him at the close of the service and she said, I want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid God will send me overseas as a missionary and I don't want to go. Dr. Scroggy opened his Bible to Acts chapter 10 and verse 14. And he explained the utter absurdity of another preacher by the name of Peter and his reply to the Lord. See, God had given Peter a vision of a sheet in which were all manner of four-footed animals and wild beasts, creeping things and birds of the air. And Peter, being this good Jew, he hears this voice say to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter answered, Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. Dr. Scroggy explained a slave never dictates to a master. Therefore, to say, not so, Lord, that's rude. Dr. Scroggy then said, now I would like you to cross out the two words, not so, and leave the one word, Lord. Or, he said to the lady, cross out the word, Lord, and leave the two words, not so. He handed her a pencil and he walked away. For some time, as he would watch her, she struggled. He then returned looking over her shoulder. He saw a tear-stained page with two words, not so, crossed out. And with the broad, bright smile, she said, Lord, Lord, Lord. See, no longer would she be able to dictate because she no longer had the right or authority, only her Lord. She was now a disciple 
He, Jesus, was now her Lord. See, Lordship brings a life of power, victory, and joyful obedience. Surrender to the Lordship of Christ is the beginning and the basis as you move on to spiritual maturity. As I mentioned earlier, when you leave here this morning, who will be your Lord? You or the one who created you and all that exists around us and the one who died, was buried, and rose again? Which one will be Lord? Let's stand together, please.